Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, check us out on Patreon at Demystified Podcast, or even just follow us on Twitter. I am now updating it more frequently so you'll know when bonus episodes are out and, you know, when regular episodes are out, as well as other updates about the show. Any little following helps the show grow. I've been looking at the metrics. They are looking great. The show is doing really well, and honestly, it's very uplifting for me as a creator to know that you guys are enjoying the show and listening to it. Uh, So tell your friends. Anyways, on with the show. When we last left off, our intrepid but hopelessly underprepared Belgian expedition had reignited the flames of Antarctic exploration. But as we said before, wheels were already turning when the Belgica left port, and by the time it had returned, the chocks were pulled away and a veritable flight of new expeditions were all being launched. What the Belgica had achieved was that inflaming of passions, but what it hadn't achieved was that all-important record to set. Furthest south. Since the beginning, polar exploration has for the largest part been something of a pissing match for those whose only goal is glory. It's not about what you do, it's about how far you go. Each man must outdo the man before him, and men would go to any lengths to achieve this. Our story today is three stories. I said in the beginning we'd do six this season, but I lied. The final count will be more like twelve, all told, and we're covering three. Much like how in the tale of history, the pioneering expeditions laid the groundwork for those questing knights after their holy grail of the South Pole itself, this episode will lay the groundwork for the peak of the season next time when we get to that all-important achievement. To start with, we have an expedition out of Britain, but led by a Norwegian. Karsten Borchgravink is not new to us as he gave a stirring speech at that conference of 1895, but he is about to break a record that was last set before the Heroic Age, before the Franklin Expedition, before he was even born. Borchgrevink's roots go back to England on his mother's side. Perhaps this is why they let him lead, as we've noticed in previous expeditions to polar climbs, the English are notoriously bad with letting those seen as outsiders tell them what's best for them, even if they're right. But this isn't an admiralty expedition. Here we see private finance enter the picture, as this story is born out of the pocketbook of a very wealthy man. George Nunes is a magazine magnate. His periodicals span a huge array of topics, including being the publishing home of the wildly popular Sherlock Holmes stories. He's also looking for causes to put his fortune to. It was the done thing at the time for the wealthy to sponsor things. Now, Borchgravink has been to the Royal Society before, asking for money to fund his expedition south. He'd been south with the whalers, making the first verified landfall on Antarctica, and he had used his experience to give that great speech back in 1895 to the RGS. But again, they've got cold feet about him. Why? Well, it's that same old story. The upper management of the RGS, especially its president, Sir Clements Markham, consider him a foreign interloper, some up-jumped, no-good Scandinavian who thinks he's good enough to lead Englishmen. We'll get to the RGS's expedition in a bit, including their choice of leader. For now, though, Borchgravink needs funding and he isn't getting it from the RGS, so he turns to Mr. Nunes. Nunes agrees to fund the expedition, a hefty sum of £40,000, because his business rival is backing the RGS's expedition, and now we have a race. Though styled as the British Antarctic Expedition, it is now known by the name of its ship, the Southern Cross Expedition, and it went... fine. Not great, not terrible. One man lost, the first man to be buried in Antarctica, but on its return a great deal of politics was played. Backhanded talks in closed rooms, words printed in papers to hide details, and stories about a so-called democratic anarchy taking place down south. It wasn't a good look, and Borchgravink soon passes into history mostly unremembered. Why? Well, in spite of having beaten them to the punch, the Southern Cross Expedition just didn't have what their rivals in what would be named the Discovery Expedition had. A British leader. And not just any leader. Say hello to the central figure in this mythology. The boulder to the Loki of Amundsen, if you buy into a century of very biased historiography. Robert Falcon Scott. Yes, a Norwegian just wouldn't do to lead proper Englishmen. It takes a Briton to do that, and Scott was every inch the Englishman the RGS was looking for. Stoic, stiff upper lip, 
a naval man, which is always a good look to exploration buffs. Scott was Markham's obvious choice to lead, but he brought with him another explorer who would make waves of his own. The Discovery Expedition was far greater in its impact than the Southern Cross Expedition, not merely because of political reasons, but also for the new records it set. The data collected provided a major launching off point for another expedition, the final one of this episode. That man who Scott brought with him? Well, there are many Arctic notables on the Discovery Expedition, but the standout amongst them is Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton was an Irishman by birth, alongside him was Tom Crean, another man who would make Arctic history, but Shackleton was by a long ways a man who others would follow. Indeed, the comparisons between Scott and Shackleton were noted by many on the Discovery Expedition, and it would be an understatement to say that a rivalry began to develop between the two. They were opposites. Scott was reserved and quiet, aloof, while Shackleton was gregarious and outgoing, down to earth. They also clashed as to their aims, their perspectives, and the best way of going about doing things. Scott picked Shackleton to go for broke with him, and the journey is hard. Man hauling sledges becomes their stock and store trudging hard through the ice, dragging supplies on their backs, doubling back and doing three miles for every mile they make. A record is set, but at great cost. Shackleton gets wrecked by the effort and Scott sends him home against his wishes. They remain civil, in public and in private, but it would also be untrue to say that they didn't seriously butt horns going forward. So Shackleton makes his own attempt, not just going as far as he can. He wants to go all the way. And he nearly makes it, too. On his Nimrod expedition, he comes within an eye-wateringly close 97.5 nautical miles from the ultimate prize. But he fails. Then he turns back, making a decision that could have changed history and undoubtedly saved the lives of those with him and his own. But Shackleton also inadvertently breaks a promise he made, what some consider a relic, others consider a cornerstone of what makes a man an explorer. Sportsmanship, chivalry, romanticism. Do these ideals have a place at the South Pole? We see ways of leading men clash against each other for supremacy. Lessons are paid for in blood and ice. Scurvy, frostbite, snow blindness, dysentery, malnutrition. With these afflictions hounding your steps, what keeps you moving forward? Some think it's best to leave men to their own devices, but in the cold and dark, dark thoughts begin to take hold. Others say that strict discipline is the answer, but this leaves a gap where warmth is lacking. Others say still that when all else fails, the bonds you have with your companions are all that's left. But those bonds aren't unbreakable. Or are they? For now, we save the juiciest details for the next segment. These weren't all the next three in order after our first expedition, a whole host of others went before we get to the big two, but all three in today's episodes are notable because they all held that most precious of records, temporary and fleeting, but to some, all that mattered, and they all set important precedents going forward that will inform later stories. Today on Demystified, we look at the three heroic age Antarctic expeditions that managed to hold the furthest south before the conquest of the Pole. Three for the price of one today. We're looking at three record breakers before the poll, three claimings of furthest south. This is also a great in with some of our key players to come, so that we're more familiar with the lay of the land going into the more famous expeditions. This kind of background is important because without it we risk falling into those same traps of historiography that traditional accounts of the pole races and Shackleton's survival stories fall into. We need to know the environment of polar exploration that those expeditions existed in, and these three, more so than any of the others, built that up. Now, I promised at the start we would talk about the Forgotten Expeditions, and we will. This season's bonus episode will be the big one for that in detail, but we'll touch on those in other ones. For now, I want to get a good baseline of the developments in the field from our previous leaving off point of 1899 until the race to the Pole in 1911. To clarify, there were 10 expeditions before Amundsen's Pole achievement, and we're covering four of those, last episode's Belgica and three in this one. So we'll start at the start with the Southern Cross Expedition. It all goes back to our main man, Karsten Borchgrevink. He's an Anglo-Norwegian explorer with a background in whaling, as many polar explorers do, and it was he who in 1895 had made landfall on Antarctica proper, the first verified account of doing so. There had been earlier reported landings, but no verified ones. He'd grown up in Norway, and even been childhood friends with Roald Amundsen, if you can believe it, and had worked for a time as a surveyor and a teacher of natural science in Australia. Such was his passion for travel and adventure. 
After reading some notes by Australian geographers on their potential Antarctic expeditions, he got the buzz to travel once more, so he joined up with another Norwegian immigrant to Australia, Henrik Bull, and he sailed on a whaling expedition bound southward. Here, they made their strides towards the Antarctic coast as they managed to get further towards the land that Ross had, though not further south, due to the way that geography works in Antarctica. After he got back from the Antarctic, he gave his speech to the 6th International Geographical Congress that same year. On the 1st of August, my birthday incidentally, he gave an account of the voyage, providing crucial information on those spots where he and his crew, who he's with, were able to penetrate through the sea ice and avoid the failures of past expeditions. The first trick, as the Belgica would find out, is actually making landfall on Antarctica. I would encourage you to look at photographs taken in that time period of the enormous cliffs of pure ice that just don't exist today due to climate change. The situation on the ground then was another ball game entirely to what it is now. Despite his speech being well received, Borchgrevink was not popular with the Royal Geographical Society for several reasons. Firstly, as we mentioned, he wasn't British, more specifically English. Another expedition that gets overlooked is one manned by Scotsmen, which we might talk about at a future date. In particular, Sir Clements Markham, the president of the RGS, intensely disliked the idea of non-Brits taking charge on RGS ventures. To him, the South Pole was a chance to relive the glory days of the Royal Navy's Arctic ventures. He himself had been a crew member on one of the expeditions that tried to rescue Franklin all those years ago, so he had a very specific vision of wiping clean the failures of 1845-50 and ushering in a new golden age of Britannia ruling the icy southern waves. Secondly, the RGS had been planning its expedition southward since 1893 on top of that, so they didn't like the idea that Borchgrevink should be held up as a great innovator in spite of his actual achievements. Thirdly, there were doubts as to his actual leadership abilities. He had been a crew member on Bull's whaling trip south, but not the leader outright, so he was unproven and untested. So Borchgrevink spent a while going from potential sponsor to potential sponsor trying to find someone who would put up the cash to outfit his planned expedition. He'd had a nasty split with Henrik Bull after their last trip south. Their accounts had all but written the other one out, and they were now competing for expedition funding. Clements Markham then began personally putting spanners in Borchgrevink's works. He was worried that a private venture of sufficient renown might draw attention away from his grand naval expedition, so he refused to allow the RGS assets to offer any practical assistance. The breakthrough came when he met Sir George Nunes, the newspaper magnate. Now, the reasons for Nunes' support of Borchgrevink are kind of murky. Some accounts say he was just that impressed by him, but others make mention of the fact that Nunes' rival, Alfred Harmsworth, later Lord Northcliffe, was backing the RGS expedition. Thus, to spit in Harmsworth's eye, he would back the competing expedition. The amount Borchgrevink got was £40,000, around £5 million in today's money by my calculations. That's not chump change. And it really pissed off Markham. Here was this foreign upstart taking good British money that was by rights theirs. Who was this impudent whelp? But the nationalist character of things was not lost on either Nunes or Borchgrevink. In fact, one of the stipulations of the funds being given was that the expedition be styled as the British Antarctic Expedition, even though only two of the crew were British, one Australian and the rest were Norwegians. The Union flag was brought in huge numbers to be flown at every available opportunity and the Empire was made a central selling point of Borchgrevink's trip. On the 22nd of August 1898, the Southern Cross, originally a whaler named the Pollux, set sail from London to Hobart, Tasmania, and then on to Antarctica proper in the February of 1899. At the pre-scouted site that Borchgrevink had explained to the Congress those three years earlier, they made their first winter base on mainland Antarctica, Camp Ridley, named for his mother. So, how did the Southern Cross fare? Well, the results were mixed. First off, the good. Lots of firsts. First expedition to overwinter on the continent, first expedition to bring in test sled dogs in Antarctica, which would prove great for explorers, not so great for the dogs. They would also end up setting the new further south record, the first break since James Clark Ross on the 16th of February in 1900s, towards the end of the expedition, 78 degrees 50 minutes south. Then the bad. Whilst the expedition itself was well prepared enough, having avoided the scurvy, malnourishment and perpetual cold that the Belgica ran afoul of, the actual conditions in the camp were pretty dire. Perhaps the RGS, in spite of their xenophobic predispositions, had got the measure of the man. Borchgrevink was not a great leader. In lieu of keeping his men in line, which is kind of necessary in a place where one bad decision or simple mistake can kill people, there was what was called democratic anarchy. In short, there was no real leader. 
Borchgrevink's chosen campsite wasn't quite as good as he'd thought it was. There were high winds that buffeted the site and temperatures dropped very low. They soon became cabin sick, with boredom turning to irritation, turning to enmity. I'll let the man himself say it. Quote, On January 23rd, the anniversary of my first landing on the Antarctic continent in 1894, I found that the season in regard to climate and ice conditions was not as favourable as in that year. It was insufferable inside now, as the smell of the guano deposits was very strong. The wet, loose snow which settles in drifts during the recent long gale melted rapidly, and the vapour therefrom made the air muggy inside the huts. Besides, our humour always fell with the barometer, and did not always rise as quickly, especially now that whilst waiting for the vessel, the time hung heavily on our hands, although there were so many matters to be considered and talked over. End quote. Several accidents nearly caused disaster. A small fire threatened to burn their huts down, and a stove accident almost asphyxiated some of the men. Borchgrevink tried to recover by assigning things to do, but his crew were barely listening to him, and the individual men began to drift further away from each other with every day. The only fatality of the trip occurred on the 14th of October 1899. The group's zoologist, Nikolai Hansen, died of an intestinal disorder and became the first man to be buried in Antarctica. Also of concern was the fact that despite having been south before, Borchgrevink didn't really know what he was doing in terms of scientific experiments. You tend to have science officers, but it's also generally good if the leader of the thing knows what's going on, which he didn't. When spring of 1899 came, remember, southern spring is November, they tried to make inroads inland with their dog sleds, but the progress was blocked by a mountain range. The huge quantities of trekking they'd planned to do got curtailed, so they mostly just explored around the camp. When the Southern Cross returned from wintering in New Zealand in January of 1900, they packed up camp and left quickly, rather untidily too, as later expeditions would note. Despite having more than enough provisions plus fresh supplies to stay for another season, the mood in the camp had grown so dour that Borchgrevink realised the only real way to preserve any kind of morale was to call it quits on that part of the journey. They did move on to other parts of Antarctica, heading around to the area of the Ross Sea, Another accident almost saw Borchgrevink and his ship's captain, Bernard Jensen, swept in by a wave. They almost met the same fate as poor old Karl Vinkia three years prior. They'd reached the Great Ice Barrier, now known as the Ross Ice Shelf, that had previously stopped Ross's progress, but finding that it had migrated south since then, they'd automatically broken his record. Despite their landing only netting them a few miles of travel to further that, it was significant because it opened up a route past the Great Ice Barrier, allowing for future expeditions to make landings closer to the pole itself. With this done, they sailed home. They returned to England in June of 1900 to a rather muted reception. You see, Markham was such a huge navy buff and Brochkovink, the guy he hated with a passion, had broken the further south record set by great naval explorer hero James Clark Ross. Markham could not have been more furious. Whilst it might make you happy to imagine the Victorian slash Edwardian equivalent of a gammon getting pissy at a non-Brit making waves, it also meant that all the press is sympathetic to the nationalist cause played down Borchgrevink's successes. Despite giving him a fellowship, the Royal Geographical Society kept the Southern Cross expedition quiet because they were trying to build public hype for their own expedition, the next one we'll talk about. They did give him a medal in 1930, after Markham had died. Finally, Borchgrevink wasn't all that great an explorer himself. He did discover some new flora and fauna, scale the ice barrier, and set the further south record, but his account of the journey was written in a rather self-aggrandizing way. This would go over poorly with the general public, who expected tact and humility from their heroes, and the responses from his fellow crew members, who said he was a pretty bad leader, made that look even worse. If you're going to talk the talk, you'd better walk the walk. Still, with the Southern Cross expedition proving that you could overwinter on Antarctica, there was a way past the Great Ice Barrier and further inward, we can now move on to the actual execution of years of planning by the Royal Geographical Society, the Discovery Expedition. This would be the first official British expedition since James Clark Ross had gone that way in 1839, 60 years prior, and a huge deal was made out of this fact. In the same way that the British press has downplayed the Southern Cross expedition, they played up the Discovery Expedition. To talk about this, we have to explore the relationship between British explorers and the Royal Navy, because it's important not only to this one, but to all other British ones after that, both Scott and Shackleton and all the others. So, the Royal Navy had traditionally been the main branch of British exploration, especially in the polar regions. The Discovery Service was where officers who weren't keen on shore leave went to earn their pay and make names for themselves. We've talked before about Franklin to no end and how that caused a lull in polar exploration, but another nail in that coffin was an unsuccessful attempt at the North Pole in 1874. 
Between those two, polar exploration was seen as too much money and manpower for too little return. But then Clement Markham becomes secretary of the Royal Geographical Society and then president. Markham had, as we mentioned, been in the Navy to the Arctic in search of Franklin, the lost naval Arctic hero. This was very formative in his life, and when he became president of the RGS, he was incredibly keen to see the Navy return to the Arctic. Markham is sort of the genesis for British Antarctic voyages, which he had imagined to be in the style of Ross and Franklin. He was a bit like the hipster bringing back the retro trend, huge naval affairs with big ships, big bunting, big fanfare, and stoic navy heroes conquering nature for queen and country. That was what he wanted. Whilst the Royal Society, Britain's foremost scientific body at the time, was interested in the scientific side of things, Markham was more in it for the glory. Sure, science was nice and all, but you can't put a price on a polar medal. To this end, it was due to Markham's dogged insistence that the leader of this expedition would be a naval officer, not a scientist. This dispute eventually caused a resignation on the planning committee, when Markham's insistence that the naval man be in command of every aspect of the expedition, much like they had been in years past, so frustrated John Walter Gregory, professor of geology at the University of Melbourne, that he straight up walked away from the table. To be fair to Markham, he made it clear that the reason for this was tradition. He valued science and didn't want to go south just for the hell of it, but he was also willing to place tradition above what newer generations of explorers were coming to call common sense. But who was this navy man that Markham put all his chips on? The one he'd had his eye on, Robert Falcon Scott. Scott joined the navy at the age of 13 as a cadet, later a midshipman. That's basically a kid who's training to specifically be an officer. They're ranked above adult seamen, but below other officers. His career had progressed relatively smoothly, potential mishaps with marital infidelity and a small torpedo accident aside, but in 1894, as a 26-year-old torpedo officer, he learnt that his family had gone broke. His father went bankrupt and died a few years later, leaving his mother and siblings entirely dependent on him and his brother. Then, his brother died young in 1898, and the whole family now relied solely on his income. So Scott became hell-bent on being promoted. As we've mentioned before, being an officer is actually kind of expensive at this time period. There's a standard of life you need to maintain, but he's also providing for his mother and his two unmarried sisters as well. Scott needs to advance, quickly. But Britain is at peace, and the only way to get promoted in the Navy, given that it's A, massive, and B, a place where lots of upper-class twits go to earn easy paychecks, is to be super proactive, a real go-getter. By chance, Scott bumps into Clement Markham in the street whilst on shore leave in London the new head of the Royal Geographical Society, and he learns that Markham is looking for a Navy officer to lead a new, high-profile expedition south. At this point, Scott does not give two shits about Antarctica, but leading that expedition means promotions, and promotions means financial security, so he makes his case. Markham likes his chutzpah, and he's instantly taken with him. So Scott is the leader, handpicked by Markham for his naval chops and willingness to make stuff happen. But Markham doesn't get nearly as many sailors as he wants. The Admiralty gets stingy in releasing officers for the trip. Maybe it's bad memories of Franklin, or maybe it's the now ongoing Second Boer War and other future conflicts they're anticipating. This becomes a thing later on as well, but a pin in it. They get a couple more officers, but most of the men are from the Merchant Marine or civilian ships, and in particular the third officer is a man named Ernest Shackleton. Time for Shackleton's bio! A loud and proud Irishman from County Kildare, Shackleton always felt bored at home and longed for a life of adventure. At the age of 16, he was allowed to leave school and take to the sea, but he couldn't afford an apprenticeship with the Navy, which is what Scott had done. So he joined the Merchant Marine as an apprentice before the mast, i.e. learning on the job, doing the hard work. He tried to see as much of the world as possible and delighted in meeting new people. He was outgoing and it made him a natural choice as a leader. By 1898, at the age of 24, he was a master mariner. He could now captain any merchant ship in the British fleet. He worked nominally for Union Castle, the transport line, but when the Boer War broke out in 1899, the second Boer War that is, he transferred to a troop transport ship. Here he met an officer whose father was a major financial backer of the National Antarctic Expedition, Markham's project. He used this connection to score a place aboard the expedition, and his keenness was duly observed. He was then technically enlisted in the Naval Reserve as a sub-lieutenant, ending his civilian career and put down as a third officer on the expedition. Despite not officially being a Navy gig, Scott gets the crew's permission to institute the Rules of Naval Discipline, the Naval Discipline Act. Basically, he gets to treat it like a Navy ship and punish those who step out of line to instill discipline. This expedition was far better supplied than Borchgrevink, and his was pretty good. 
They got £90,000, nearly £12 million in today's money in funding, and had sponsors coming out the yin-yang. Coleman's Mustard and Flour, Cadbury's Chocolate, Bovril, Jaeger Specialist Clothing, Bird's Custard and Baking. All the big-name brands of the early 1900s were on board with the voyage. That makes a big difference in terms of securing supplies in bulk. Rather than outfitting a whaler as the previous expeditions had, they got a purpose-built, three-masted, scientific exploration vessel, the RRS Discovery, originally launched as the SY Discovery, because that designation was added later. It cost £34,000, £4.5 in today's money to build, plus a further £10,000, £2 for specialist engines, coming to a final total with additional modifications of £51,000, £9,000,000 for their ship alone. Scott wanted some background on polar exploration before he took command, with no experience, so we talked to famed Norwegian explorer Fridtjof Nansen. Nansen was a huge inspiration on basically every other polar explorer, especially you-know-who, so expect to hear him coming up a bunch. Now, Nansen advised them to take sled dogs, and Scott took them, although this comes up later in his own tale of tragedy. The goals of the expedition are somewhat nebulous, essentially, go as far south as you can, explore, take readings, do research, do whatever you feel. With all that said and done, they set off from the Isle of Wight on the 6th of August 1901, and in New Zealand they lose a man. Able seaman Charles Bonner fell from the rigging whilst trying to impress a crowd on the docks, and died. They arrive at Cape Adair on the 9th of January 1902, and sailed along the Great Ice Barrier to its easternmost point. In the process, they discovered what they called King Edward VII land. In February, Scott and Shackleton took flights in observation balloons, which, with the winds being what they are down there, must have been brick-shittingly terrifying. Making winter quarters in the aptly named Winter Quarters Bay, they built their hut at Hut Point. Not the most creative bunch, polar explorers, as we've said before. They had their ship frozen in, like the Belgica had done, though rather than sending it back to New Zealand, they used their hut as storage and lived on the ship. Here we get to the first problem. They want to do overland exploring, but they've only got two people who know how to use the dogs and nobody who knows how to use the skis, both of which Nansen said for them to take. Scott was an advocate of man-hauling, which is exactly what it sounds like. Whilst their sleds were little better than dragging the lifeboats of the Franklin expedition, it's still back-breaking work that makes you sweat, and when you sweat, you get cold and exhausted. It's not great, but man-hauling was a Royal Naval staple of polar exploration. Tradition, once again, showing its hand and coming up short. A walkout during a blizzard got another man killed. Able seaman George Vince fell over the edge of a cliff. His body was never recovered. That winter saw brief flirtations with scurvy. Some got angry at Scott's sentimental refusal to slaughter animals for fresh meat, but a dietary switch solved the problem, for the time being. Shackleton also started writing a newspaper, the South Polar Times, which he would resume on later voyages. It's at this point that Scott decides to try for the Pole, if he can. He takes Shackleton and scientist Edward Wilson with him to go as far as they can. They beat Borge Gravink's father's South record, but their inexperience with dogs causes problems. The support parties trail off and they end up having to double back for halves of supplies. They travel three miles for every mile south, a mile forward, a mile back, a mile forward. They'd messed up the dog's food as well, so they had to shoot the weakest of them and feed them to each other. This is the sad reality of dog sledding in Antarctica. The absence of easy game to hunt and easy to transport food for dogs means that polo explorers often resorted to dog cannibalism. The men soon became ill with frostbite, scurvy, and snow blindness, which is a particularly horrible condition where the snow sunburns your corneas. Shackleton suffered the worst. He could barely walk, but they kept going south. They turned back on the 30th of December, having reached their record of 82 degrees 17 minutes south, but the return journey was bleak. The remaining dogs died. By the end, all of them had scurvy. But they made it back to the ships by the 3rd of February, having been travelling for around 93 days. The plan to get frozen in, however, backfired. They couldn't leave that summer, as the ice didn't melt, and whilst a relief ship had brought fresh supplies, here we get the Scott-Shackleton rivalry beginning improper. You see, Shackleton was still weak from his bad bath of scurvy, and Scott insisted he be taken home on the relief ship, despite the expedition being authorised for another year. Shackleton was angry. An argument ensued. Whilst they would later speak cordially, this was the first of the rifts that appeared between them. So Shackleton's out, and Discovery is in for another winter. More overland exploring happens, but even fewer dogs and still no good experience, Scott prioritises man-hauling. Because this is easier if you don't know how to use dogs, he has a better time with it. This creates a false causality in Scott's mind that will end up being one of the factors of his eventual downfall. 
He becomes negatively predisposed towards the use of sled dogs and instead gets locked into the mindset that man-hauling is the only reliable way of trekking. This also means he devalues the advice that Fridtjof Nansen gave him, the man whose advice Roald Amundsen would find invaluable. Despite a near-fatal run-in with the crevasse, the second summer progresses with no major changes. A lot of exploring, no new southern record, but some good signs to be getting on with. Things get tense around the second winter, however. The relief ship Morning returned with another ship, Terra Nova, with orders that if the Discovery couldn't be freed, she would have to be abandoned. Markham had run out of funds to contribute to the expedition despite the massive budget, and was now counting on the Admiralty to cover any losses. If they couldn't get her out by the 25th of February, they would have to abandon Discovery, which would have put a huge dent in the coffer in terms of loss. Remember, she'd cost the modern equivalent of £9 million to build. They really didn't want to lose her. But if she got stuck, they couldn't afford another winter. Things looked tight, and they'd almost finished transferring things to the other ships when on the 10th of February, the ice suddenly broke, and they got the Discovery out just in the nick of time. When they returned home to Britain on the 10th of September 1904, Things were initially muted, but the fanfare soon picked up when the public heard the news. Scott got his promotion to captain, and a whole bunch of medals from both home and abroad. Other officers and crew got polar medals, but Scott's career was made. He even got to meet the king. A whole bunch of scientific discoveries had been made. Fossils to help understand Antarctica's continental history, the nature of the Ross Ice Shelf, new routes to positions farther south, emperor penguin colonies, snow-free valleys, a calculation of the location of the magnetic pole, and the anti-scurvy properties of seal meat. Which, if you recall, was already known to the Inuit. But it's not official until an Englishman writes it down. This becomes important for later expeditions, although scurvy still remains a serious problem until vitamin C is fully isolated in the late 1920s. Scott and Shackleton continue to drift apart when Scott's account of the voyage paints Shackleton as dead weight. Despite his natural reclusiveness, Scott becomes a national hero and this causes even more problems. Because the Discovery Expedition is being hailed in the British press as a total triumph for Scott and his men, very little objective analysis of the flaws of the expedition is being done, which creates a bad habit mentality. In particular, Scott's glorification of man-hauling is intrinsically nobler and thus superior to dog sledding meant that later British expeditions tended to favour it, even though today we know, and the Norwegians knew then, that it is objectively worse, as well as the use of skis being something that proper British explorers wouldn't need. Fritjof Nansen in particular was confused by Scott's account. They'd asked for his advice and then ignored it and were now parading around as though it was actually a good thing. Scott's opinions on what we might term Norwegian tactics, although again a lot of it had been learnt from the Inuit, are a matter of hot debate, but if one takes this perspective it goes a long way to explaining the decisions he makes going forwards, which otherwise to an objective outside perspective seem inferior. At this point however, Shackleton is not happy with his role in all of this as is being perceived by the public. He busted his ass man-hauling sleds and getting scurvy only for Scott to throw him under the bus. What was all that about? He'd taken being sent home early, even if it was for his own good, as a personal failure, and felt that given Scott's account painting him as a spare tyre, he needed to prove that he was not only a good explorer, but he was a better explorer than Scott. He declined to return on the Terra Nova to rejoin Discovery, and spent a few years working other jobs on shore whilst making his own plans for a grand comeback. They included a somewhat low-balled expedition cost of £17,000, if you recall, that's half the cost of the Discovery before modifications and engines for an entire expedition. His employer at the time, Sir William Beardmore, an industrialist for whom Shackleton was the PR manager, promised £7,000 towards the expedition as a loan, and with this Shackleton felt confident enough to propose to the RGS. His plan was to base at the Discovery's headquarters in McMurdo Sound, then make a run for both the Magnetic South Pole and the Geographic South Pole. Ambitious, to say the least, but this was the juiciest prize since Discovery had come back. This would be alongside other scientific work as well, in case they failed the polls. Shackleton had also planned three modes of transport. Dogs, ponies, and motor sleds, the latter two of which had not been used in Antarctica before, and the final of which was cutting-edge technology. Shackleton had also asked Fritjof Nansen about the ponies. He said they wouldn't work. Shackleton then pulled a Scott and ignored him, and took ten. After scaling up the demand to £30,000, Shackleton was turned down by the RGS. He later learned, much to his chagrin, that the reason for this was that the RGS wanted to back another Scott-led expedition instead. Things got tight. He had intended to make landfall in January of 1908, which meant leaving summer 1907. He had six months to get the cash, get the ship, get the crew, outfit the whole thing, and be underway. A real race against time. 
he eventually acquired an outdated small sealing ship, the Nimrod. Despite it initially looking a total mess, she was a fixer-upper that proved to be able to punch far above her weight when push came to shove. Funding came in dribs and drabs. One nobleman paid a large sum to be allowed to come with. Another set of funds came from the Australian New Zealand governments. It was a real patchwork expedition, all told, and with Shackleton owing a lot of money to a lot of people. The costs eventually reached £45,000, up from the initial estimate of 17000 But the ship was fitted, the crew was picked, and the supplies were loaded. Here, things get heated between Scott and Shackleton again. Scott was going back, that much was clear, but his next expedition wasn't planned yet. Shackleton wanted to use the Discovery's old camp as a launching point, but Scott asked him not to do that. He considered McMurdo Sound as his ground, and reminded Shackleton that he had been his commanding officer. Shackleton was initially agreeable to this, but then stifled that Scott thought he could just fence off the entire Ross Ice Shelf and McMurdo area as his to explore, when he himself was chomping at the bit to surpass Scott. Eventually, Shackleton agreed to Scott's demand that he leave everything west of 170 degrees west to him. He had bigger fish to fry at the time securing financing, and he'd just have to go a little bit further toward King Edward VII land. This did mean abandoning the magnetic pole to Scott, as that fell within his new domain. Polar historians have since majorly criticised Scott for making that request of Shackleton, and for Shackleton for acquiescing to it, despite the major societal pressure to do so. That sudden change of plans could have ruined the whole expedition and endangered him for no reason other than petty pride. But this was the reality of the heroic age. It mattered what other explorers considered fair play, at least if he didn't want to get shafted by the press like Borchgrevink had been. After inspection by the king and queen, they sailed south on the 11th of August 1907. Shackleton wasn't actually on that ship, he stayed behind to attend more business. He joined later on a faster ship, this is something he would do several times. To save fuel, he managed to get the government of New Zealand to tow the Nimrod some other way. On the 23rd of January, they reached the Great Ice Barrier, but the inlet they'd intended to use to go clear of Scott's territory had disappeared. The shape of the barrier had changed due to ice carving in the intervening years, and now the approach to King Edward VII land was no longer safe. Remember that time Borchgrevink almost drowned? That was because ice carved off and created a wave that nearly drowned him, so to overwinter there risked dangers in the spring. Shackleton now had two choices either abandon his goals altogether and retreat and choose something new, or break his promise to stay out of Scott's territory. He chose the latter, and upon his return, his relationship with Scott broke down for good. They tried to reach the Discovery base, but were blocked by ice. An accident cost 2nd Officer Aeneas McIntosh his right eye. Tensions mounted over the landing point between Shackleton and ship's captain Rupert England. It became an open secret that he was to be replaced, and when he sailed for New Zealand at the end of the summer, the engineer had with him a secret letter detailing instructions for England's replacement to the general crew's happiness. With base camp established, the sea ice broke up and they could no longer reach their intended sledding destinations. Instead, Shackleton proposed that they climb Mount Erebus, the second highest on the continent, and at that point, unclimbed. It's 18 metres taller than Mount Fuji, for reference, and it's also an active volcano with a lava lake at its peak, which is super cool. They made the climb, and a few cases of serious frostbite aside, things went well, all told. The winter of 1908, however, is where Shackleton really comes into his own, and we see a big departure from Scott. Scott was a Navy man, which meant that officers and enlisted men did not fraternise. This was to ensure discipline and order. Shackleton was not a Navy man. All men, officers and enlisted, ate together, slept together, worked together. They enjoyed mutual recreation. This was combined with the fact that unlike the austere, reserved, aloof Scott, Shackleton was gregarious, so it complemented his leadership style. This caused morale throughout the winter, usually a time when it's at his lowest, to be unusually high. And Shackleton was noted for his ability to make every man feel both included and useful, no matter his rank or role. But the spring came time for the southward march. The magnetic and geographic poles were back on the table. Now Shackleton had, like Scott, ignored Nansen's advice that dogs and skis were the way to go. He'd gone for ponies and mechanical sleds. The motor car they brought, despite being decent on the ice, couldn't climb, so the mountainous terrain made it useless. He chose Surgeon Eric Marshall, Navy Reserve Lieutenant Jameson Adams, and Petty Officer Frank Wilde to accompany him, and on the 29th of October 1908, they set off. He had carefully planned the journey, allowing for a 91-day round trip. A slow start meant reduced food rations to allow for more days' travel, which bowed poorly. Progress had been steady, but by mid-November they'd already had to shoot one of the four ponies. On the 26th, they beat Scots further south, a personal win for Shackleton, because he himself was present the last time, and they'd used a better route to shave 30 days off the previous track, 29 days to the record compared to Scots' 59 days. But things got worse. Two more ponies lost, 
and they came upon a new glacier running between two mountain ranges, named after the expedition's sponsor, Beardmore. The last pony, named Socks, fell down a crevasse on the 7th November. It was only from his harness breaking that Wilde wasn't pulled in with him. From then on, man-hauling was the order of the day, which despite their good time meant slower progress. Tensions raised in the group. Wilde got angry with Marshall, and Marshall got angry with Shackleton. They had only a month's worth of food and were now 461 kilometres from the pole, but Shackleton refused to give up. They dumped everything they could afford to and reduced rations to meagre handfuls. The final march on the polar plateau was impossible. Tensions reached a boiling point, and Shackleton began to blame the men he'd picked for their failings, and by the 4th of January 1909 he finally admitted that they wouldn't make it. They'd reached 88 degrees 23 minutes south, a mere 97 miles from the pole, and they had broken both the north and south record for closest to a geographic pole ever. The return journey was strangely straightforward. Despite being half-starved and increasingly weak, they made good time and made a five-day descent of a glacier that had taken 12 to ascend. By the time they reached their depot on the 28th of January, Wilde was suffering from dysentery. Shackleton's giving of him a breakfast biscuit, a rare commodity and one of the only things he could stomach, was enough to strip away all the animosity of the march. It cemented the image of Shackleton as a man who would always get his men out, no matter the danger. Indeed, by the time they reached the next depot on the 23rd of February, they were so malnourished their bones began to ache. A blizzard halted their progress and Marshall collapsed, so Shackleton and Wilde made a mad dash to stop Nimrod from leaving on the prearranged date of the 1st of March. They got there just in time, lighting a wooden hut on fire to signal the vessel, and all of them made it back. At the same time, another party had gone northward, consisting of Australians, geology professor Edgeworth David and his student, Douglas Mawson, who will reappear later in this season in his own tale of polar endurance, and other surgeon Alistair McKay. Their goal was to head for the Magnetic Pole, and claim the area for the British Empire, because of course. They left on the 5th of October 1908 and went by motorcar for the first while, but the going became treacherous. Ice fields have hidden crevasses, which if you don't know what that is, and I've mentioned it a few times, they're basically cracks and fissures in ice sheets, but they can be hidden by layers of snow and suddenly open up without warning beneath a person and their sled, sending them and their pack animals up to a hundred feet down. Falling that far in the ice in the dark, you're lucky if the fall kills you outright. They eventually reached the magnetic pole on the 17th of January, fixing its position as 72.15 south, 155.16 east. In a ceremony that indicated that none of them really cared about planting the flag, they did that more because they had to. They too had to make a mad dash to reach the rendezvous with the Nimrod. By the time they got there, they'd been wearing the same clothes for four months, and the smell was described as overpowering. And that's saying something given the context of how everybody else must have smelled. Other parties had done other geological work as well. Overall, it was a pretty eventful and successful expedition. On the 23rd of March 1909, a cable went from New Zealand to the Daily Mail, ugh, who had exclusive story rights. The response was extremely mixed. Nansen and Amundsen both massively praised Shackleton, as did the public at large. The broader community of polar explorers and people on the street marvelled at his achievements, and it was now clear from how close he'd gotten that soon somebody would be the first to reach the South Pole itself. The British establishment, on the other hand, were less pleased. Though Scott reluctantly came out to greet Shackleton with the crowds in London, privately he was very unhappy that his area had been taken, the gentleman's agreement had been broken, and Shackleton had taken the magnetic pole. Clements Markham expressed disbelief that Shackleton had made it that far, and the broader RGS were rather quiet about things. But the praise in the public made up for it. The king bestowed on him a knighthood amongst other honours, and his fellow Irishmen celebrated a victory for a proud Irishman in a sea of Anglo-centric news. The reality was less great, however. Shackleton was broke. The expedition made almost no money. It took a significant government grant plus a bunch of write-offs to save him from financial ruin. And with that, we come to the end of the further south expeditions. With Shackleton's tantalisingly close record, it was now up to those whose irons were yet in the fire to take up the mantle and complete that last record, though a private exchange between Shackleton and his wife would foreshadow the risks inherent in that final sprint. A live donkey is better than a dead lion, don't you think? As far as I'm concerned, dear, yes it is. So, there we have it. Three for one and three records set and broken. What do we make of them? These expeditions give us so much background context when it comes to understanding the mentality of the heroic age, so let's go through them to get that context. 
First off, we have the Southern Cross Expedition. This shows us the importance of both who you know and where you come from in terms of getting your funding and your praises. As much as he was rightly criticised for being a bit of a weak leader, Karsten Borgschewink was denied his initial leadership and later praise because one man in a high position was convinced that he was too foreign to be worthy of it. We saw it before with Crozier in the Franklin Expedition, we see shades of it possibly with Shackleton. Irish, and Irishmen can't lead Englishmen. In this time, even if they know more. The expedition makes landfall, but it quickly runs out of places to go, so we see the value of having something to do. Bad weather notwithstanding, Shackleton made his men climb Mount Erebus because they couldn't go to their earlier goals of the pole. As we've discussed, when men get bored, they get demoralised, and that leads to a whole mess of other problems. Then we've got the Discovery Expedition and what it teaches us. Here we see Scott and Shackleton make their debuts, and for two very different reasons. Scott was almost forced into the role, he had no real ambitions of going south, but he needed to provide for his family through career advancement, the only way to do that was to be an explorer. He later took up the mantle, but part of me wants to read this like he was almost forced into that limelight, and later overcompensated for his natural hesitations by being overconfident. Shackleton, however, loved it. He was born to be an explorer, always wanting to push that boat out, and was naturally more comfortable in a leadership role. When Wilde, who'd been pissy with him for the latter half of the trek, was suffering from dysentery, he made him eat his biscuit. Wilde had this to say, quote, all the money that was ever minted would not have bought that biscuit, and the remembrance of that sacrifice will never leave me. End quote. It might seem small and frivolous, but this was man who had zero luxuries on the edge of survival. Him giving him one biscuit made all the difference in the world. Moreover, we see Scott get into a mindset that he had to be right about things. That's what being an explorer is about. He'd asked Nansen, a very famous and well-respected explorer, about the best approach, but when he couldn't make the dogs work through his lack of experience and the skis, he wrote them off. This sort of mentality is inflamed by men like Clements Markham, who insist on naval tradition making things like manhauling seem noble rather than dog sleds, methods used by savages and lower people. But remember what happened to Franklin's men when they manhauled sledges with scurvy? They all died. But this is the heroic age. Part of the point is to be a hero, and you can't be a hero unless you suffer. You also see shades of that romanticism in Scott's promise that he forces out of Shackleton. Uh, I call dibs on that bit, Shackleton. That's, that's my bit. You shouldn't go there. It's, it's mine. But you also see that in reality, romanticism bends the knee to pragmatism. Shackleton wasn't about to die for a promise he made to a man that he didn't like all that much. We also see a divide between the private expeditions and the public ones. For the British, the public ones are all about empire. It's got to be navy men, union flags, led by Brits, starring Brits. The private expeditions, by contrast, end up being a bit more diverse, and by that nature able to focus on different goals and incorporate more diverse backgrounds, like the Australian student Douglas Mawson who, as I mentioned, gets his own episode later in this season because he's that extraordinary. What different expeditions choose to prioritise is a highly political and social thing, as well as scientific. In earlier ages, these expeditions were characterised as being for the purpose of science, or for king and country. But Scott's expedition was in part to show that if you want a job done right, you get the navy to do it. And Shackleton's was in part to show that Scott wasn't anything, and Shackleton was the guy. So many socio-political factors went into the organisation of these things, from the budgets, to the sponsors, to the backers, to the personnel, to the routes taken, to the objectives achieved. All of that then builds up to what happens on the ice. It's like the D-Day landings. You've got the weather forecasts, espionage, practice drills, seafaring expertise, joint chiefs of staff, air superiority, resistance fighters, and all of that leads up to one moment. Landing craft, hit surf, doors drop, guns start firing, and all of that planning leads to the man on the beach. When you're freezing your ass off in an ice ditch fighting over year-old biscuits, you might not care that some dude in London with a stupid name prefers Navy guy to Army guy, or English man to Norwegian, or whaling boats are better than sealing boats. But all of that leads you to where you are, and you are the one who is there and has to deal with it. And in those moments, you want a guy like Shackleton. We'll save the famous quote for his own episode, but leadership makes all the difference. That separation of officers and men works great in the military because you need to be able to command respect in a pinch, and indeed, we saw with Borchgrevenk that no authority equals anarchy, an equally bad situation. But too much austere command, treating merchant mariners like naval subordinates breeds its own resentment, especially if you then begin talking yourself up in the write-up and leaving others out of it. A naval man like Scott would have balked at Shackleton bedding down with his subordinates, 
But as we see in his episode later in the season, it's exactly that camaraderie that he uses to pull his men through seemingly insurmountable odds. That's not to say Shackleton couldn't get serious, his nickname to his men was Boss, but being able to lift them up on an individual level and motivate each man to do his best is a very rare quality, exactly what you need at the ends of the earth. This isn't me dunking on Scott right now, by the way, merely commenting that we see the formation of several bad habits and mindset problems that will later cause catastrophic problems. If you know Scott's name, you know how his story ends, and the dissection of how we get from here, Antarctic hero and successful voyage, to there, is a long one with lots of moving parts. It's too simplistic to say by far, Shackleton good, Scott bad, Borgkrivik mediocre. More than that, we see trends developing, stress points that become fractures that then snap the proverbial blade down the seam. Shackleton ignored Nansen too, to begin with, if you recall. He took ponies, which he soon realised was a bad idea. He also used untested motor vehicles, which didn't work. But Shackleton maintains good correspondence with Nansen after the fact, and we'll see how his strategies develop. Scott, meanwhile, becomes kind of insulated in a British bubble, in part forced into that role by the realities of being a naval officer and the new darling of the Royal Geographical Society. What really seals it is when Scott gets praised for and then embraces man-hauling. It just isn't optimal if you can use dog sleds and skis, but the romantic ideal of the stoic Briton forging the links with his body and spirit is too big a propaganda victory to pass up on. All of this really epitomises the heroic age, what defines it, that ideal of a struggle between man and nature, and those who can see that it doesn't need to be that way, as well as those who refuse to perceive the nuance, or fail to perceive it. But that brings us to the end of the episode, and we'll close the book for now at least on the furthest south records. Join us next time as we get to the title card event, what you've all been waiting for, the race to the South Pole. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, hosted by Wizard Studios and with music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod and support us on Patreon at Demystified Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.